This is Chapter 24 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We focus on thriller writers this week, those authors who excel at keeping you on the edge of your seat. Our Rob Hawley sits down with the one and only Lee Child. Then we ask Randall Silvis to define his literary mystery style of writing. And we wrap up with a quick chat with Steve Barry. We spoke a little bit last week about Thriller Fest, the annual conference put on by the International Thriller Writers. Lee Child received this year's Lifetime Achievement Award, but before receiving the honor, he swung by our studios to talk with our Rob Hawley, one of his biggest fans. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome in Lee Child. He is the author of the Jack Reacher series of novels, which has also been turned into a couple of movies uh, starring Tom Cruise. Lee, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, it's a real pleasure. I've walked past this door many, many times and never been in. And we're, we're, we're thrilled to have you in. Um, before diving into Reacher and writing, let's talk a little bit about Thriller Fest. You're the grand master at Thriller Fest. So for the uninitiated, what is that? It means a guy who's still alive after 20 years of doing this, and uh, so they give you an award for that, and it's a real privilege to have it, a real honor. You know, when I started out, I was hoping I would maybe get away with it for one or two years, and then three or four years, and here we are at 20 plus years. Feels pretty good. So what's Thriller Fest? What's there for writers, and what's there for fans? Well, Thriller Fest is run by International Thriller Writers, which is a relatively new organization, and it was founded just with the pure motives of A, celebrating the genre along with our readers, B, looking after the writers working in it, and C, helping new writers get into it. So it's very much craft and trade-based, but also there's a lot for readers. There's a lot of stuff they can find out. They can meet their favorite authors, get books signed and all that kind of stuff, get photographs. And then for the newer writers... They come in and there's always somebody who has been in that same spot before. You know, if you've got a problem, you've got a contract issue, if you don't know what to do with your next book or any of these kind of inside baseball things, there's always somebody to talk to and it's incredibly helpful. So for people who may not have either read the books or seen the movies, Uh tell me about Reacher. How do you describe Jack Reacher? Because he is the centerpiece of these books. Well, you know, once I saw online a description of Reacher, the series, it said, this is a detective series where the detective commits more homicides than he solves. And Reacher's a bit like that. You know, he stands up for justice. He's got a very strong moral code. He's an ex-military cop. He was an MP. Now he's out of the military, and he's, he can't settle down. He just wanders America because he spent his whole life on bases overseas and stuff like that. He's never seen his own country. So he intended to spend a year or two wandering about looking at things. He's been doing it now for 20 years. And amazingly, sort of once a year, he stumbles into some kind of a problem or trouble where somebody needs help or somebody needs support, and he's willing to give it. Your 22nd novel, Midnight Line, is due out this fall. Where does this find Reacher? Well, it finds him, first of all, in Wisconsin, and he walks past a pawn shop, and in the pawn shop, he sees a bunch of kind of junk jewelry that has been pawned, but amongst the tray is a class ring from West Point, uh, West Point 2005, and it's tiny. Therefore, this was a woman cadet who graduated after four hard years in 2005. Why did she pawn her ring? What would make her do that? So Reacher buys the ring from the store and follows it backward. Where did it come from? Where did it come from then? And he ends up in the wilds of Wyoming uh, and looking for the woman who gave it up. And uh, she's got a pretty pretty tragic story. And, and so that's really the arc of the book. He's, he's chasing this ring. He's got nothing better to do. 
It's fascinating because he finds himself, like you said, in trouble. But it starts with these kind of like innocuous little things. Like in one in one book, he was on a train and he just liked the name of the town, Mother's Rest. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he is a guy with absolutely nowhere to go and all the time in the world to get there. So he just absolutely loves things like that. He was on the train. He sees the station, Mother's Rest. He doesn't. He's not going there. Didn't intend to, but he gets off because what else is he going to do? Yeah. And he stumbles into something in that one that was pretty bad. So, 22 books. How many more times can this guy dole out justice and cheat death? Yeah, now, that's a great question because by now, the odds are against him. But uh, people love that mythic stature. They love the mythic hero. And, of course, the mythic hero can never die. He'll always win. And that gives me a challenge as a writer because we know kind of that he's going to live through the book because there's got to be another book. And we know kind of that he's going to win because he always does. So how do you get the suspense? And that is that's my challenge as a writer. But so far, it's working okay. And his strengths are many, some of them quite literal. I, I think in one book, someone looked at him and, and, and saw his physique and said, how many times do you go to the gym? He says, I've never been once in my life. Um, and, and he's got this kind of Holmesian power of observation and deduction. But where are his blind spots? Where are Reacher's weaknesses? Well, lots, he's got lots of weaknesses. The, the thing that I drew on, you're right, he's, inc- he's very smart, he's very deductive, and he's very physically fit and strong. But apart from that, he's completely normal. In fact, a bit of an idiot about a lot of things. Doesn't know how to do laundry, doesn't know how to work a payphone, all kinds of things. And I took that from people we see all around. I mean, suppose you go to the ballpark, you see those players, they're superhuman at playing the game, but the rest of their life, it, they're as big idiots as the rest of us. And so I think it's it's pretty plausible that people have these really narrow skill sets and the rest of their life perfectly ordinary. He, he's a detective. He really is a detective at heart. But we're moving into an era where computers are much more prevalent. Surveillance is everywhere, but he's kind of very old school. How do, how do you transition a guy like Reacher into the digital age when he doesn't even carry a cell phone around? He's never owned a cell phone. He's used one once or twice when he's borrowed them, but he doesn't want one. And you're right. He's an analog guy in a digital age. And um, that is a, it's, a, it's a challenge in a way, but it's actually a bonus because it's kind of too easy. You know, if everybody has a cell phone, everybody has a computer, things are too easy. So usually you find him way out in the wilds where there's no coverage. You know, there's no signal for, this, for the phone. There's no computer. So he has to do it the old-fashioned way, which I think people like, to be honest. It's too easy if you, just, if you have a problem, you just look it up on your phone and you move on to the next chapter. You know, the book's like four pages long in that case. <laughs> he travels famously very light. Uh, an ATM card, a passport, and a toothbrush, and the clothes on his back. Have you ever tried that? I absolutely have. I've, I've done that a lot. I, I've tried a lot of things that are in the Reacher books. Uh, Traveling light, I don't own quite as little as he does, but pretty much. You know, like clothes I'm wearing today are all cheap, and I'll throw them away when they're done, and I'll uh, <laughs> buy new ones. I do that when I'm on tour, especially because then you don't have to carry a big suitcase. And I think it's part of what people love about Reacher. He is literally free of any entanglements or any commitments. He can just walk away and be somewhere the next day. And I used to think that was a guy thing. You know, that was a male fantasy. But actually, over the years, I've learned it's equally a woman's fantasy. They would just love to pick up and be somewhere else tomorrow and leave it all behind. And so they, everybody can live through Reacher. It's not an easy way to live, actually, just traveling like that. But it can be done. $20 motels, the folding toothbrush, that's all you need. He's also crisscrossed the country by various means. How many of the places that he's been have you been to or places that are analogous to them? 
Oh, everywhere. Yeah, I don't do it specifically for the book. You know, I don't think you should do it that way around. I don't think you should go somewhere with a camera and a notebook. It's all too kind of artificial. But I travel an awful lot, and I, I've been all over America. And uh, the, the weirdest, strangest places, met the most fun people, the most odd people, the things you just wouldn't believe. And so I just love to put Reacher in those situations. At this point, how do you see Reacher? Is he a real person, or is he kind of a mannequin that you pose to serve the story? How do you see him? I, I conceive of him as a real person. And the real trick, I think, for a writer writing a long series is to never fall in love with him, not like him too much. Otherwise, he turns out too good, too sugary, too perfect. So my plan is that I should like him a little bit less than you're going to like him. And that keeps him honest and it keeps him uh, organic. And people respond to that. You have bounced back and forth between first person and third person writing in your novels. Why? And, and the, I think you did it in between the first two novels, which kind of threw me when I read them. Why do you do that? Does, is it something to serve the story? Is it something to just challenge you and keep you interested? It was partly to serve the story. I love first person. First person is best. That's how we all tell a story. You know, you're going to go home tonight and you're going to say, I did this, I did that. You're not going to say, Hawley did this, Hawley did that, unless, you, <laughs> unless you're seriously weird. But uh, so first person is the natural way of doing it. But the problem with first person is you can only know what Reacher knows. You cannot see around the corner. You can't see the bad guys back at the ranch. So for a lot of thriller plots, you need the third person so you can have the alternative point of view. But I really did it at the beginning in the in the vague hopes that this would be a long-running series. I wanted to stake out some territory. First book was first person in a small town. Second book was third person, and the FBI was there. The White House was there. So I wanted to stake out the sort of left field, right field territory, and then the in-between part would be mine forever. And uh, that worked with the first two books, and I've enjoyed kind of bouncing back and forth, not just first and third person, but big and small, you know, dusty little town in the west of Texas in one book, and then you get all the glitz and glamour of D.C. and L.A. in another book. It gives you tremendous flexibility. I think that's why I'm not bored with the series. After 22 books, you know, you could imagine sitting down to write the next one and thinking, oh, here we go again. But I sit down with exactly the same excitement that I did for the first one. So for a lot of people, Tom Cruise has become Jack Reacher. He has starred in two movies based on the books. You've actually been in the movies. Did you did you write yourself in? Did you really want to be in these movies? I really wanted to be in. I think everybody wants to do that cameo, you know, in their own in their own movie, but I was too cool to ask. I was waiting for them to ask and they did. They called me and they had this really complicated idea, this symbolic idea. In the first movie, Reacher is in jail overnight and he goes to the desk in the morning to pick up his possessions before he is let out. And as you said, he only has really one possession, which is his toothbrush. So the desk sergeant had to give Reacher the toothbrush and Reacher goes out the door. So they saw tremendous symbolism in this. If I was the desk sergeant handing the toothbrush to Reacher, then on another level, the writer of the book is handing the baton to the actor. And they saw tremendous meaning in that. So I was like, sure, I'll do that. And I did. And it was lovely. And then we did the second one. Same kind of thing. Reacher has to get through the airport on a phony ID. And they got me to play the TSA officer. So I'm looking at his phony ID, looking at Cruz's face, looking at the ID, looking at the face. And I say, all right, whatever. Enjoy your flight. Again, the approval of the writer for the actor. And I thought it was cool. It was a cute thing to do. So in a recent novel, um, you sent Reacher back to your native Great Britain. Until then, he had always just been crisscrossing the United States. Uh -huh. What was it like sending Reacher to your homeland? 
it was real fun for me because it was an exact reversal of what I normally do. Normally, I'm a foreigner writing America like a native. And for this, I had to do it kind of backwards. I was a native writing London like a foreigner. And it, it was a question of, okay, so if a guy like Reacher goes to London, what is he going to notice? What is he going to look at and be kind of astonished by? And there's a lot of stuff in Britain because Britain's a weird old country. And in one particular thing that, you know, I've been away for 20 years. And when I go back, it's the same for me. I, I, all these strange things are happening. Like you go to the grocery store. And I had Reacher do this. You go to the grocery store. You buy what you want. Then you've got to buy the bag. You buy that little plastic bag to put it in. I could not believe it. Neither could Reacher. He says, what kind of country is this? So in that case, you had to kind of put yourself in Reacher's shoes. So that kind of leads me to this next question. How much of you is in Jack Reacher and how much of Jack Reacher is in you? I, I think we all put a lot of ourselves in the main character because it's partly for the fun of it and partly because what else do we know? So there's a lot of Reacher in me. Generally speaking, uh, men authors make their heroes an inch taller and a lot stronger. Generally speaking, women authors make their heroines have better hair and thinner thighs. It's kind of an idealized version of ourselves. And Reacher shares my birthday. He shares my tastes and my likes and dislikes. So it is a little bit autobiographical. What I sometimes say to people is it's purely autobiographical in terms of his personality. But for the violence, I tone it down for the books so it's plausible. <laughs> Lee Child, author of the uh, Jack Reacher series of novels, the uh, 22nd one, Midnight Line, yeah. comes out in November. Thank you so much for coming in. Real pleasure. Good to be with you. Randall Silvis was also at Thriller Fest this past week. I caught up with him to chat about his newest mystery. To start, tell us a little bit about Two Days Gone. Two Days Gone is a literary mystery. It involves uh, the main characters are uh, Thomas Houston, who's an English professor who has recently published his fourth book, and much to his surprise, has become a bestseller. And it also features Ryan, Sergeant Ryan DeMarco of the Pennsylvania State Police. They become friends whenever Houston approaches DeMarco to do some research, and then Shortly after, DeMarco begins to think that he has found his best and only male friend. The entire Houston family, other than uh, Thomas himself, is slaughtered one night at home in, in their beds, and Thomas has disappeared. So now it's up to Ryan DeMarco to track down his friend and bring him to justice if he, in fact, is culpable. And you use the term literary mystery to describe your book. What exactly does that mean? The literary part speaks to the quality of the writing, that it's, it's of a literary quality, that, you, uh, that it pays attention to language and cadence and, and voice and theme and all the things that uh, literary novels pay attention to. But most literary novels have no or a very small plot. And so I started out as a literary writer. Uh, and my first book won the Drew Hines Literature Prize, and I wrote um, a collection of literary stories and then a literary novel and decided that I wanted to make some money for a change. And uh, looking at the marketplace, I decided that the genre that I could best apply my literary aesthetic and still tell a compelling story would be uh, mysteries and crime novels. So basically, it's a crime novel uh, that has a strong plot, but I also spend a lot of time on exploring character and language, and, and uh, voice is very important to me as well. And you pack a lot of literary references into your stories. In this one in particular, there's Edgar Allan Poe, there's Hemingway, there are references to Lolita. 
Yeah, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> uh, I, I do because they were all my mentors. I, I never took a creative writing class. I don't have an MFA. I basically uh, taught myself by studying the masters. And um, so their writing has stayed with me and what I learned from them has stayed with me. And it seemed a natural fit since Thomas Houston is a professor of literature that uh, those kind of allusions should make their way into the book. And so at one point in the book, early on, Tom Houston mentions he's working on a book and is working on a character who's a logophile. Is that something that can be used to describe you? Because you do sprinkle some unusual words throughout the book. Yeah, I do. Um, I don't do it purposely. I just choose the words that uh, I think fit best. Um, and then a lot of people write me a nasty note saying thanks a lot I had to I had to keep a dictionary by my side when I read this novel other people some people enjoy it and other people find it an annoyance but uh, it's not that I go looking for big words I just use the words that that seem to emerge naturally your book also lacks a prominent female character why did you make that decision I didn't it was not a decision I'm I'm not an analytical writer I know some who are who sit and plot things out and, and decide to do this and decide to do that I essentially I get up in the morning I meditate I make a cup of tea I sit down and I start writing and I write based on what I wrote the day before I read what I wrote before and I polish it and then I just let the story continue as it will and this ended up being a story about um, one man who has lost everything and one man who seems to have everything and then loses it and um, so it, it, it was a natural story to tell without any prominent women because at least for DeMarc of the lack of uh, the lack of a, a good supportive intelligent guiding woman in his life is what causes him most of his problems. And your characters have been described as being extraordinarily literate. Is that a reflection of you? Is that just something that you look for in other people or in your characters? Yeah, I've, I've been um, accused of that ever since the first mystery I wrote. The Washington Post called my first uh, mystery an occasional hell extraordinarily literate. Um, and I, I realized that there was a part of me and this love for literature, uh, classic literature especially, coming out in most of my characters. So I had to find a way to justify that. And with DeMarco, uh, it was that his wife um, was an English teacher. She culturated him. She taught him um, the things that she knew and that she loved. And, and he came to love literature as well. And I guess it goes back to what you said earlier, it allows you to pay homage to those masters that you studied. Absolutely. They are my teachers, and I call upon um, what I learn from them all the time, every day when I write. So yes, I think of all of them very fondly. So what can readers expect next from you? Well, Walking the Bones is the second, uh, second book in the series, and it comes out in January. It has DeMarco um, in answer to... Uh, your observation and some other observations that there was no prominent female character in uh, book two he does have a love interest and uh, to he's also still reeling from all the other people who lost their lives uh, in that case um, so he goes on medical leave and uh, and a, a woman who has a small plays a small role in book one Jamie Matson who is also a Pennsylvania State Trooper she and she and DeMarco take off on an RV for a little vacation and not knowing that they're going to get embroiled in another investigation down in Kentucky. 
Of course, trouble seems to follow him. Absolutely. I mean, that's my job to make sure that trouble follows him because otherwise I have nothing to write about. Well, thank you for taking the time today to talk to me. My pleasure. It's, uh, I appreciate uh, your interest in the book and I appreciate it from all my readers. Thank you. One of the most popular panels at Thriller Fest, year after year, is one hosted by Steve Barry. He called us in between sessions to discuss what he affectionately calls summer camp for thriller writers. What's your favorite part about this annual event? It's getting together with everybody you know. It's it's summer camp, basically, for thriller writers and thriller enthusiasts. So it's a chance for folks who basically stay by themselves all the time. We all come together in one place and get to see each other and talk thrillers and talk the business and talk things. It's, it's, it's literally like summer camp when you were a kid. <laughs> and I know um, you run a popular panel, the six C's of story structure. That's right. I, my, my wife, Elizabeth, is executive director of ITW, so she runs it. She ran Thriller Fest before that, and she makes me do the same panel every year. I've done it like um, nine times now in a row. And I talk about story structure on Wednesday morning, which is uh, one of the opening sessions. And then I do another session on dialogue and point of view. The day before, we did something quite incredible. We do Mastercraft Fest, in which I taught 10 students for the eight-hour day, uh, very intense teaching on the craft of writing. And now we've settled down into Thriller Fest itself, which is panels and discussions and spotlight guests. And we have a huge thing tonight with the, with the celebrating our new anthology matchup, which is out in stores now. We have 22 of the biggest writers in the, in the world paired up male-female uh, with their iconic characters. I wrote a story with Diana Gabaldon. And can you give us a little preview of uh, what that story entailed? Oh, it's a cool story. It's uh, my character, Cop Malone, who's in modern day, uh, gets caught up with Diana's character, Jamie Frazier, uh, who is, of course, back in, uh, you know, uh, old olden Scotland. So Cotton is going to go back through the stones, or so he thinks, and gets back through the stones and goes back to that time and interacts. So it's my character into, into Diana's world, the Outlander world. That sounds awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's talk about also your latest thriller, The Lost Order. I know we spoke to you about it earlier in the year, but for, those, for those who haven't picked it up yet, what would you like to say to entice them? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a cool story from the Civil War dealing with the Smithsonian. It's my Kiro Cut Malone. It's a modern-day thriller dealing with a modern-day treasure that is real, that's still out there waiting to be found, and something very interesting that deals with the Senate of the United States. It's very timely to what's all that's going on right now. So it's one of those action history secrets conspiracies. If you love that, you're going to like The Lost Order. That's this week's podcast. Special thanks to Kimberly Howe, Meryl Moss, and Deb Ziff, who were a big help in setting up this week's interviews. And don't forget, you can email us at books at WCBS880.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.